Women and Wellbeing is an Adam Center podcast highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Miller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Marala Halacha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kivun Roots Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and the creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this year's Eden Center podcast, where we will be focusing on different themes relating to women's well-being each month. This month, in honor of Kislev and the holiday of Hanukkah, we will be looking at different models of courage. Stay tuned for my important interview after these Torah thoughts about modern-day bravery with Shana Aronson, the director of Magen. Hanukkah is the holiday most associated with courage, with gvura. While we celebrate the miracle of the oil lasting eight days, we also celebrate the Maccabees, who bravely fought against the Greeks for independence and religious freedom. Interestingly, over time, Hannah came to be associated with several female heroines as well, and this has had an impact on the laws of Hanukkah candlelighting. How do we know about these female heroines? Who are they? The Talmud teaches in Shabbat 23a that women are obligated to light Hanukkah candles because of the principle of Afhen Hayuba Otohanes. They too were included in the miracle. The Talmud cites this principle with regard to women's obligation in several mitzvot, including drinking four cups of wine on Pesach and reading Megillah on Purim. The Rishonim, the medieval commentaries on the Talmud, debate the meaning of the phrase, they too were included in the miracle. There is a discussion, there is a debate between Rashbam and Tosafot about what this phrase means. The Tosafot interpret this to mean that women were miraculously saved from danger as well as the men. So it is a collective celebration of women as well as men having been saved. And in this case, the Hanukkah candles are lit by everyone because everyone was saved. However, the Rashbam takes a very different position and explains that there was a specific female heroine who had an active role in saving the Jewish people. He specifies, just as there was Esther on Purim and the righteous woman, the Nashim Tzidkaniot, in the time of the Exodus, on Hanukkah there was Yehudit. Taking the Rashbam's view that there were female heroines on the Hanukkah story, Let's look a little bit more deeply and understand who these women are and how their story came to be a part of Hanukkah. Besides Yehudit, mentioned by the Rashbam, there is another woman who comes to be associated with Hanukkah in the Midrash. The Talmud tells the story of um, an anonymous mother who witnesses the martyring of each of her seven sons by a foreign emperor. She's not named, nor do we know when this story historically occurred. But the second book of Maccabees tells a parallel story. And there, the sons are being commanded by Antiochus of Hanukkah fame to eat pig or bow down to idols. Even though she suffers the worst tragedy a mother can experience, this woman affirms her faith in God. Later on, in a 10th century Midrashic work called Josiphon, the mother comes to be known as Hannah. And the story is associated with other stories of martyrdom for the sake of God told on Hanukkah. Yehudit, as well, demonstrates tremendous courage. Her story is also not found in traditional Jewish sources at first, 
But it certainly echoes the story of Yael and Sisra, for example, in the Book of Judges and other biblical heroes. Her story is preserved originally in the Apocrypha in the Book of Judith. She is a widow who bravely kills the general Holofernes when others had given up hope. She goes into his tent, and while he hopes to seduce her, she instead manages to behead him. Elsewhere, Holofernes is mentioned as a general of Antiochus, connecting this story with Hanukkah. Additionally, she becomes the female parallel to Yehuda HaMakkabi, Judah the Maccabee, both in name and in demonstrating bravery. Later halachic sources mention Yehudit as the source of the minhag to eat cheese on Hanukkah, since some accounts of her story have her feeding the general cheese so that he would be thirsty and would get drunk enough so that she could defeat him. There was clearly a desire in these sources for there to be a female heroine associated with Hanukkah, just as we have Esther on Purim. The view of the Rashbam highlights the bravery and and courage of specific women throughout our history. These are special role models for our children to learn about. But there are many forms of courage. These are examples of physical courage and spiritual courage, which are very important. Today, I'd like to highlight another kind of courage emotional and psychological courage. Specifically, I'd like to talk about women who have been victims of sexual abuse and who choose to go on and talk about their trauma. As we celebrate women's courage and bravery this Hanukkah, let's also take a moment to think about these women of our generation who spoke up for justice and to make the world a better and safer place for all of us. On this note, please join me in just a few moments We'll be interviewing Shana Aronson, the director of Magen, uh, an organization devoted to protecting our Jewish communities and keeping our children safe, about this important topic. Chodesh Tov. ...a bachelor's in psychology and certification in educational guidance counseling, as well as training in abuse prevention with at-risk children and youth and IFS therapy. Shauna served as the assistant director of Sophia, a residential therapeutic home for adolescent girls at risk. She later worked as the social services coordinator for Magen Child Protective Services, where she supported families whose children had been physically and sexually abused before joining Jewish Community Watch as a case manager and finally as the executive director of Magen. Outside of her work running Magen, Shana's advocacy roles include volunteering as a coach to religious brides who were survivors of interpersonal trauma and birth assistant to women with histories of sexual and physical abuse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the important work you do? Oh, that's, it was really a process. I don't think I can point to one single incident or anything like that. Um, Definitely in my, there were various things that happened in my background. And as when I was a teenager with various friends, um, where I kind of became more and more aware of the prevalence of sexual abuse um, in the community, in the Orthodox community that I was a part of. And the fact that it seemed like no one really was talking about it, like, like the thing that was going on and I just kept hearing more and more and more about it and yet somehow like nobody knew but yet everybody knew but nobody knew at the same time that was sort of the the feeling that that I kept getting um and then I uh after I I went to college and I, I really wanted to work with teens at risk and I really started off in that field 
Um, and through that work, just kept being confronted over and over again with uh, sexual abuse, rape, attempted rape, incest that had gone on for so many um, of the young women that I was coming in contact with. Um, and it sort of was like an evolution to uh, where I got involved with this, this specific work um, and to where I am now. Wow. We've come a long way in this field, um, I'm sure, in part thanks to your work. You have been working in this field for some time, and you're currently the director of Magin, which we'd love to hear a little more about. And you are committed to helping the Jewish community learn to talk about sexual abuse. Now, of course, it's understandable that people do find it hard to talk about this, especially when it relates to our respected leaders and rabbis. How is it that abuse stories can be kept secret for so many years? So, I mean, first of all, McGain, uh, just talk a little bit about McGain. McGain works in pretty much three primary areas and kind of the like awareness and education piece where we do a lot of uh, training for parents and creating resources for parents and awareness both through media and social media. Um, I think this is important to, you know, if we're going to deal with this, we first need to talk about it and acknowledge it, which as I said, thank God, over probably I'd say the last decade, we've seen so much, so much movement um, there, which is amazing and really welcome. There's still a long way to go, but um, we are, you know, the, the landscape looks entirely different to where it was 10 years ago. Um, and there are, there are a lot of really wonderful people. I shouldn't say a lot of really wonderful people. Unfortunately, there are not enough people doing this work, but there are a number of wonderful people that really have worked hard to get us to to where we are now um, in both the Slaritan and Israel. Um, and then we work in the mental health, uh, kind of mental health resource uh, field, um, with in terms of referrals for therapy and various support groups. Um, and we work with a foundation that funds therapy for survivors of abuse. So a lot of different just resources and, and support on the mental health side of things. And then the investigation and advocacy side where we support victims who are um, pursuing, whether it's criminal or civil action against their abusers for the abuse took place, um, working with community leaders um, in, in kind of dealing with known predators, suspected predators, um, and uh, we work with the media a lot on, on kind of, uh, I guess, the investigative piece of, of things, um, as well as cooperating with law enforcement whenever we can, um, and supporting victims through, through that process, you know, just literally physically accompanying them sometimes, even to, to the police, to court, um, to all of those proceedings. Um, so in terms of, you know, how, how do, there are so many cases that we hear about where it becomes this, like, again, sort of everybody knew and yet nobody knew. And this, you know, really um, like the worst kept secret, you know, where somehow this was going on for so long and so many people say, oh, I, I, uh, I heard about this, but I am, uh, you know, I, I heard about this, but it's not, but, but no one really talked about it. So I thought it was just me and various things like that. You know, we, we sort of hear those messages all the time. And, and I think that that's, it's not something that's really completely unique to the Orthodox Jewish community. I think whenever you find, wherever you find insular communities, you find this kind of dynamic um, where when there's a hesitancy to air the dirty laundry outside of the community, um, any community like that. So we saw, we saw it in the Kibbutzim, we've seen it in the, you know, in the universities, we've seen it in, uh, in the gymnastics teams. I mean, you really see it like any community where or any group where there's a sense of needing to portray a certain image to the public for whatever reason, whether it's for religious reasons or fundraising reasons or whatever. Um, and the the you know, we want to try to deal with things in-house, um, you get this like 
this this sort of tendency and the strive to I mean, what really amounts to cover it up. Um, we might we might dress it up <laughs> nicely and call it, you know, dealing with it internally and, and cultural sensitive, you know, advocacy. But what ends up amounting to a cover up, um, unfortunately, that's even if that's not the intention, but that is often what ends up happening. Um, and that can go on for years. And it's sometimes shocking how long. And we hear all the time from people this the sense like, but if this was really happening, someone would have heard about it, no? And then when you start to dig a little deeper, there are some someones who had heard about it and they just, you know, and nothing was really done up until this point. And we saw that, you know, most recently and most, of course, uh, well-known in the Meshi Zahav case, where after it came out, there were so many people. I mean, we'd heard rumors for years, but no victims willing to actually come forward. And it took months of working on this before there were any victims willing to come forward. But then once it came out, it opened a tidal wave of a, a victim coming forward, of people saying, of course we knew that, everybody knew that. You know, we found a Pashkaville that was put out by the Hasidic community, like Meisharim from back in the 80s, saying, don't go near this man. Um, he's, 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 he's not safe around children. It was, you know, phrased in a very, very vague kind of Lashon um, Sanua, as it's called, which means not really being clear at all. Um, but it was known and then somehow not known at the same time. Um, and so again, got where everybody knew and nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and we see that a lot, not always on that larger scale, but that is something that, that happens because of those sort of natural psychological tendencies of cognitive dissonance and of wanting to protect the community by keeping things, in, you know, keeping things quiet. Um, and there are also, there are some certain dynamics that are somewhat unique to the Orthodox community, the idea of tshuva, mm-hmm. that you can sort of, I mean, obviously not genuine tshuva, because when tshuva involves making amends to to the person who was harmed, um, but sort of what we call tshuva, well, I've done tshuva, so now we can just move move on past this and we don't need to involve anybody else, the authorities, professionals, um, and, and the tendency to want to accept that. Um, you know, we, we want to accept that people have done tshuva and are doing the right thing and can get better and can improve. So I recently had some uh, some students over for Shabbat and we were talking about this topic of sexual abuse in the community and a particular name came up in the conversation. And uh, one of the girls was very uncomfortable and said, this is Lashon Hara. And it made me wonder how, how can I respond to that? How do you respond when people say it is Lashon Hara to talk about this topic? I think that, you know, being able to, there's, there's a concept in, in halacha that it takes a more learned person to be, to be matir something than to be machmer. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that concept where if you really, if you really understand the, the halachot of, of Lashon Hara, then whenever there's anything that is a toel and wherever there are people's lives that are going to be affected by this, um, if there is a, a reason that it's important to share this, then it, it can be shared and it should be shared. When you have a real understanding of the halachot of lashon hara, then you really know and understand that where where something not that it's not just that it's not forbidden to share, but that you have to share it. Um, so certainly, when people can be people can and will be affected by this, um, it's it's absolutely imperative to share it. People's lives can be affected. People's lives can be destroyed um, by the lack of sharing when somebody is not aware that there is someone who poses a potential danger. Now, obviously, in terms of how you share it is a question and there are a lot of very 
you know, wise and knowledgeable people that can help guide you both in terms of, I mean, in a number of different respects, philosophically as well as legally, um, how to go about sharing information and with who. Um, but there's no question that it does need to be shared. There's also another aspect, aside from sharing details of a particular case um, for the purpose of warning someone who could be affected, but there is an importance as well of just sharing sort of these kinds of cases in a, in a general sense for the purpose of raising awareness. There are so many victims out there that believe that they're the only ones that were affected um, or that they, I mean, either they were the only ones affected or that they are the only ones that were affected by this particular predator or that their reaction to the abuse was completely unique. They're the only ones ever suffer in this way. Um, and putting it out there that they're not alone, this is actually an incredibly universal problem um, with, I would say solutions, but with ways to help, um, you're, you can, I mean, you can save a life or save lives by, by putting that out there. So there's also something to be said about just speaking about it in a general sense as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, so you devote your time and energy to helping abuse victims speak up, uh, which is no easy task. Um, it takes tremendous courage, and that is the topic of our podcast this week, Peace, Love, Courage. It takes tremendous courage to share one's personal story about abuse. What brings about that change in a person and, and that leads a victim, some time has passed, more time has passed, to talk, to be ready to talk about their abuse? I think the process of being ready to talk about abuse is um, there's there's a communal aspect to it, which then impacts the kind of mental health aspect to it. Um, you need to be ready emotionally to talk about what happens, but in order to, you know, it, it, and it's sort of a circular kind of relationship between those two things because there also needs to be a safe space to in which to share it. So those things kind of feed off of each other where someone might is more likely to be emotionally ready when they have that communal space that has been created. Um, and creating that communal space can be something as simple as, people that share Facebook posts. I mean, I, I try to explain this sometimes that even for me as an advocate, um, like on, on a professional level, when I see someone who I, someone on Facebook, someone who I didn't previously know, cared about this issue, talked about this issue, and I see them share a post about sexual abuse, about a case, about the importance of speaking out or anything like that, there is something in my mind, and I've, and I've started to notice it, that like there's something where I go, oh, that person's you know, an ally, so to speak, of this, of this issue of survivors. And if it does that for me, like, oh, they care about this, then can you imagine what it's doing for a survivor who is, you know, sort of coming to that process of, do I want to talk about this? If I talk about it, will anyone listen? Will I be believed? Um, you're, you're literally creating that, that, that space and that community, whether it's virtual or literal, of, you know, there are, there are people that care about this a lot more than you realize. Um, there are people that will believe you. There are people that will support you. Support you might not mean, you know, they're going to pay for your therapy. Like sometimes it can mean something a little bit more, um, but just, just that you'll, you know, they'll hear you, they'll hear you and they will nod their head and support, you know what I mean? They'll, they'll actually, they'll actually be receptive um, to what you have to say. It's the fact that yes, this is real, this happens um, and you are a valuable member of the community for, you know, we, we, uh, the fact that you appreciated for, for sharing it because, People also don't think about the fact that when when victims can't speak out, abusers can continue to abuse. So whenever a victim speaks out, they are in effect protecting the community. So they're protecting my, they're protecting my children. They're protecting your children. They're protecting any you know they're protecting every vulnerable member of all of our communities. We we should be thanking them. Certainly not 
you know, not only should we not be shunning them, but there should be a tremendous amount of thanks for the fact that they are performing community service, even if that's not their primary reason for sharing it. Um, but yeah, so it, it is both of those things. It's the community and then it's also the mental health. And I, and I do really believe in therapy. I know I speak to so many victims today, but I've tried therapy. It didn't work for me. There's a lot of different kinds of therapy available nowadays. Um, and there's been so much research done in the field of trauma work. And sometimes I've, I've spoken to victims that, that work with 10 different therapists. And it wasn't until they found that 11th and found that just, you know, what worked for them that there was just, they had just experienced a lot of breakthroughs. Um, and that also it is really important. And I really do believe that having that support is, is very significant because it's hard. It's hard to open up any kind of traumatic memory, certainly something that has so much, um, unfortunately, so much shame and, you know, societal pressure attached to it. Most definitely. And I think about the image of the lighting up the torch on Yomat's mood in Israel last year, yeah. which was, you know, different kind of abuse, domestic abuse, but still, um, it, it just, you know, the, the image of seeing that for so many women must have just given them courage, um, which uh, we are thankful to her for that. So much. It was it was so significant for so many survivors that I heard from and survivors of all kinds of abuse, both male and female, um, who felt like it was such a that was such a significant show of strength and, and courage that she was acknowledged in such a public, you know, on a national level in such a public way that this is um, this is this is bravery and this is important. And what she did, I mean, she survived. But you might think, like, how does that affect the community? She didn't just survive. She survived and went on to share her story. She didn't have to do. She she would be as easily have been justified in just saying, I need to I need to just go and take care of myself. You know, I need to heal physically, emotionally, psychologically. Um, but instead, she said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to lean in to the national media attention. I'm going to lean in to the focus being put to the community, you know, the community on this. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to educate other women. And that was so huge and impacted so many people and really just so brave. Shauna, I know you've been uh, working with the Eden Center and training college teachers as part of their college teacher training course and in building a special curriculum to train college teachers in how to more fully guide victims of sexual abuse. Uh, so I would love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear, what are the three most important things we should know about how abuse can affect observance of mikvah and tarat hamishpacha, um, and also how to help transition, help them transition. Obviously, we're not specialists and therapists, but how to be aware about the transition into a sexual, a healthy sexual relationship at the beginning of marriage. Sure. So I, I think that I, I'm been such a huge fan of all of the work that the Aiden Center is doing for a while. It's been focusing on Tarana Mishpacha and Mikvah and, and Nida and, you know, through the lens of like just from a really holistic um, perspective of not just the Halachot and the Hashkafot, but also the, how this impacts how, and how it also sort of ties in with so many real life and, and day-to-day challenges to have for, for growth, both physically, emotionally, um, and, and sexual abuse is, is certainly, um, a very significant part of it. I think obviously, you know, when, when people think about how does sexual trauma affect um, the observance of all of these misfoot, of course, the most obvious uh, answer, which everybody thinks about first, is the sexual relationship. And, and that's absolutely, that can be a factor, um, but it's by no means the only factor and where we see it at play. Um, and sometimes even women who actually 
kind of are able to move into the sexual relationship with their spouse um, very, very smoothly. You know, it's, it's a positive transition for them. Women, it's, there can be other things that can be extremely challenging that you sometimes think about less. Um, for example, the, the mikvah experience can be very traumatic for some women. Um, the idea of the balami, of course, can be very, very challenging for some women. The idea of being watched, the idea of being observed, the idea of being judged, for lack of a better word, in terms of how you are doing something, even though that isn't really the role of the balami. Sometimes kalot are given the message um, from very, very well-meaning people in their lives, there be mothers or matrichot, um, that the, you know, that there's some almost similarity between the abuse and the sexual relationship. And there is in the sense of it might have used some of the same body parts or some of the same physical um, physical actions, but the the nature of what's happening is so different. And the idea that, you know, kind of the importance of reframing the abuse as not having been just a sexual violation, but really a power violation, that this was a, um, there was, there wasn't any kind of, no part of this was really similar to what's going to be going on with your spouse, other than the fact, again, of course, it, it will, it, it's natural that it can be triggering because there are many similarities in a physical sense. The abuser, the abuser did not abuse because he was, a, he or she was attracted to the victim um, in, in a physical sense, the way that their spouse would be. There, there's just, there's a lot of nuances there that are really important to reframe. And I've, I've spoken to victims that has said, especially um, to girls who are coming from a very sheltered background. So that literally is the only context that they have, the only previous sexual information or experience that they had was put to the abuse and where they were told, you know, your 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 husband might look at you, he's going to look at you the same way the abuser did, you shouldn't be scared, it's okay. No, no, your husband is not going to look at you the way the abuser did. There might be certain similarities in the physical expressions of what's going on, but your husband is looking at you in a completely different light that the abuser did. The abuser is not looking at you in a I'm going to touch you or do whatever I'm going to do because I am attracted to you. It was a, I am going to control you. And that is what was at play there. Um, and that's, it's such an important distinction to make. And I think it's, it's really critical that, that that message be shared throughout the Kala classes and throughout that experience to sort of make that shift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. It sounds like uh, you are doing such important work and it's so wonderful that the Eminent Center has partnered with you on all of this uh, incredibly significant uh, work that is so good for people and will help people so much. Um, So because our topic is strength and courage, I really just want to uh, wish you that you continue with your strength in this this arena. I'm sure it's not simple. Um, So really, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Extremely gratifying about it is that I get to come in contact and all, all over to our whole team. We get to come in contact with incredibly brave um, and courageous people constantly, whether it's the victims themselves or their family members, their relatives, the parents um, that are, that have, we just get to, watch. It's, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to watch kind of the evolution from that initial shock and horror, um, which, you know, at what happened and how could this happen um, to that place of strength and how they're going to deal with it, how we're going to heal, how we're going to move forward in whatever way is right for them. But it's, it's an unbelievable thing to watch. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank uh, you. Hodesh Tov. 
This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedencenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is recorded by Karen Miller-Jackson, edited by Megha Shore, and is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe. We welcome your feedback by email at podcasts at theedencenter.com.